my thought was let's look at opportunities as technology emerges on how we can do things differently. And the biggest by far was when the technology for um, video responses came out. I believe I was the first person at scale to send a video to every client every week. Um, and I want that to be the industry standard, you know, or beyond, but currently that's, I think I'm just always looking for if I can provide a little extra value. Hey guys, welcome back to another edition of the birth of industry. Uh, I'm not sure I have the chronology of this one, right, but I did have to include Paul very, very close to the top because just like Lane Norton was an early client of mine, Lane coached Paul. And the way I met Paul, I, I was speaking, Lane invited me to speak at his VIP camps he was having at the time in Florida. And at one of those camps, there was some training you know, modules where we would train with a couple people, uh, as well as doing our lectures and workshops. And uh, he, he paired me up with Paul. So we got to train together. And as a client of Lane's, Paul uh, helped out with the camp. He ended up being, I, I think he, he's told this story more than once, but, but he was a van driver. And uh, I found myself sitting in the front seat next to him a couple of times, we really got to know each other. And as I think all of you know, just from either interacting with him or watching him from afar, Paul is just one of those people who is so authentic and such a good human being that he just genuinely cares. And that's, I wish it was not as rare as it is, but when you find that in a peer where, where you, you could have competitive rivalries, you could have, you know, different factions and so forth. You're just never going to find a guy who cares less about that stuff and more for his clients, more for his staff. And I would also say more for his friends. Um, so I'm, I'm incredibly privileged to have connected with him so early. And I watched him start his business, his coaching career, and grow it to one of the biggest forces in the entire industry and purely carrying it on his back just for the sake of one goal. And he's maintained this all the way through. I want to be the best coach in the world. And technically, I think the results speak for themselves. But anybody watching, if you're a competitor with a coaching relationship or a coach who, who looks for peer relationships, what a great lesson to learn. The way you succeed is to be a good human being. So I am, again, proud to say I, I had a chance to sit down with Paul and am just uh, honored to share this interview with him. Enjoy. Paul Ravella, we have known each other how many years now? I'm going to say 2009, 2008. Man, everybody knows those dates. Not like me. I kind of just, just let those things go. I'm, I'm more in the moment. I mean, I knew of you before I actually knew you, so I'm not counting the knowing you until we met at the lane camp, I'm guessing. Well, and what I want to talk about this being our origin series, I'm putting together a chronology of who I think are some of the biggest voices in our industry and really lay a historical background for what I think people may not even realize about their own occupation. A, that it's pretty young. And so I look at you as one of the biggest influencers right now, and I know nobody likes that word, but I should say influence is in our sport. And you have such an interesting rise because I did meet you at a camp in Florida. Uh, I was speaking and you were, what was your role at that particular camp? I think if you had to define it, it was probably bus driver, <laughs> airport pickup, uh, gopher for lunches and yeah. Yeah, but as every great bodybuilding career starts, it was in baseball. And so let's let's go back to those years when, when you were just perhaps uh, not even a teenager and you were involved in sports. What, what really got you into a physical or athletic life? What, what, what was it that said, man, I, I just love being active? You know, I mean, if I go back to my earliest memories, I remember in elementary school, they had this thing called the Presidential Physical Fitness Certificate. And it was like a mile run, 
pull-ups, pull, I don't know. It was just all these random things that they said, this is what defines someone who's in good shape. And we would test it like once a year. And I would practice for that. I would be like, okay, I used, I remember getting up before school, going downstairs and just doing as many pull-ups as I could do. Cause I think you had to do like seven. Right. Um, and then I would just go for a run every day after school and try to beat the time. It was like, whatever, 10 minutes for the mile. And this was like third, fourth grade. I, I don't, I don't remember the specifics, but that's the first time I remember thinking like, huh, I'm kind of good at fitness. Cause I remember the teacher like calling me out and saying like, Paul won the pull-ups, Paul won the race, Paul, like Paul won all the stuff. And I thought, I don't know, maybe it was good for my ego in fourth grade, but I was like, I got known as a fitness guy, you know, even back then. And it wasn't fitness, but it was more like, I don't know, a calling car. I, I just, I became a little bit obsessed with like those metrics. So about the same time for me, but you were the guy that I hated. And so that <laughs> motivated me. So, so imagine a, a chubby little Joe in the fourth grade maybe even fifth, I think it was fourth though. And, and you're looking around and, and there's this Paul Ravella character. There's the quarterbacks, the football team. And you're like, wow, you're like, that's really something like, like something about them. Sure. It's the pre-puberty surge. Like you're, you're just starting to notice these things that are different about the boys and the girls and whoever you're yeah. you know, trying to become. And so that was kind of the same start for me. And then we both ended up trickling mostly through baseball. T tell me how that career went because you ended up pitching in college. I know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I was obsessive about baseball from about third, fourth grade on, you know, I wanted to go to all the spring training games. I grew up in Florida. I got, I'm surrounded by thousands of baseball cards. I wanted to go, I would go watch high school and games that I wasn't even a part of. Um, I remember in little league, my grandma would give me a, a, a pack of baseball cards for every strikeout I got. So like I was, you know, I would ask my dad to go in the backyard and catch me and bullpen me so I could like get better at striking people out. So I just remember like always wanting to kind of strive um, in, in, in high school, my senior year, I was able to break our high school's um, strikeout record. Um, I had an ERA in the low ones. Like I had a really good senior season. Unfortunately, there was a kid who was in the junior class below me who also broke that record who went on to play quarterback for Georgia tech and was a major league baseball player for like 14 years. So he was the one that everyone noticed, but I was quietly a very good player. I ended up getting a baseball scholarship um, and, and did my time with that, but I didn't really have the foundations of how to work hard. I didn't understand what that meant in college. I got by on a lot of talent. You know, I was obsessed with lifting weights, playing basketball. If I'd have put all that focus into baseball, I'm sure I could have you know, matriculated a little bit longer. Um, but I ended up after, you know, I graduated from Valdosta state just thinking, okay, it's time to start a new life. Um, I just saw the, where baseball was leading me. Okay. If I'm not going to be in the big leagues, I'm going to be a coach of a college an assistant coach. It just didn't, it didn't get me excited. And I just cut it off and I just went and did other things in my life. Yeah. Again, similar for me, but a little bit earlier, I, uh, in little league, for example, I was all-star catcher always, you know, our, our team always won the city championship and all that got into high school. And I also had somebody who was just, you know, a little bit better than me, a little, little bit bigger in terms of a good blocker behind the plate. So I moved to third base, moved to center field. Um, and, you know, s similarly, but without the college uh, scholarship, I just thought, you know, I'm just, this is not going to, to lead me anywhere. So I had to leave it behind. That's when I turned to weightlifting. I had been training since I was 11, 12 years old, uh, that became a little bit more actual bodybuilding as a, as a formal path. And just wondering when you started doing the same, when you decided, Hey, I'm, I'm jumping in the gym here just for the sake of building muscle or strength. Yeah. So it was between my junior and senior year of high school. I had obtained the book, the modern bodybuilding encyclopedia by Arnold Schwarzenegger, which was, you know, pretty, pretty health, pretty healthy. My best friend got a pretty decent weight set, um, in the upstairs of his house. It was like a bench, a squat rack, some, you know, some of the dumbbells where you had to mix, you know, you put the weights on and screw on the, th the ends. But I just remember that summer, he and I would literally every day pick out a couple of the exercises and try to figure out how to do them. Um, and then I just remember like one day we'd be doing an exercise and he'd be like, wow, look at the, the muscles in your quads. You can see them. I was always very lean. You know, I mean, I'd never stopped moving. So the second I put on any muscle, you know, I, you could see it. And so that, that kind of was exciting for me. And then I took weightlifting my senior year of high school. Um, 
which a lot of the football players, you know, they were in the 200 bench club, the 250 bench club, the 300 bench club. And I think, I think I graduated high school benching about 175, you know, like I was, I was six to 150 when I graduated high school, it was just, just a, a bean pole, but I don't know. I just always loved that ability to kind of shape your body a little bit. You know, I was doing the best I could, didn't really understand nutrition too much, but for me, that's kind of what sparked it. And, um, you know, obviously I think at least one girl that I knew had said something like, Hey, have you been working out? You, you look like you're putting on some muscle and that's when the wheels start turning. Right. So, um, and I think a lot of people get into it for that, but for me, that was just the beginning phase. And I didn't realize until later on in life that, that I was more interested in the actual weightlifting than the narcissism of it. Right. Like to this day, I have to work out. It's just like, you know, makes me a better person. When, when was your first contest and, and how did that come about? Yeah, that's a strange story because, well, I mean, maybe not strange for our era, but when I was growing up, there was only one division. It was called bodybuilding. And there was only one magazine you read and that was either flex or like muscle and fitness. And all you saw was Jay Cutler, Ronnie Coleman, flex Wheeler, you know, Lee priest. So I didn't think bodybuilding was ever going to be my thing. Cause at six, three, I'm pretty sure I'd have to be 300 pounds on stage to look like those guys. So around 2007, I found on the internet a video series that you were in called Life of a Natural Pro that Lane had uh, done with bodybuilding.com. And it was like this weekly little video series where he was coaching Tommy Jeffers. And that's the first time that I remember looking at myself and looking at them and thinking like, well, they look awesome, but I look kind of like that, like that kind of the mold that I fit into. And so I remember going on the computer, typing in natural bodybuilding, Florida, finding a show that was four hours away, me and my best friend, Christian, the guy that, you know, I was in the attic lifting weights with drove to it and watched it. And I remember seeing the guys on stage and being like, they look amazing. And then they would walk by me and they were like 150 pounds. And I'm like, holy cow. So that's really what it was. That's what led me to reach out to lane. That's what sparked it. I didn't actually get on stage until I was 32 and I'd been in the gym for more than a decade. And so Lane was already a known quantity, which, which means I was kind of in the background doing my natural bodybuilding fitness magazine editing and that kind of thing. Um, and, and you said, you remember the episode where he interviewed me? Is that when you, of course, of course you yeah. were, um, you were in there. Um, Jim was in there, you know, Tommy, a lot of the Dave Gooden, a lot of those guys, I remember your episode because, you know, you were introduced as like the person who kind of created this approach to flexible dieting and who looked at things differently at a time when it was ridiculous. If you didn't cut water and all these things, you were basically saying do the opposite. Um, which I think part of my personality, I like going against the grain. I don't like doing what everyone else is doing. And that, that sparked my interest as well. And what's interesting about that. So I'm getting ready to leave, hop on a plane to go speak at a camp. And this is a particular camp series that kind of launched my career 20 some years ago. And I remember this is pre-social media. I could go to these events and I could talk about those things. Here's why water depletion is just not helpful for you. It's why you're going to look worse. Here's what you need to do with sodium instead of depleting sodium. And, you know, you would just get those jaw dropping moments and people would just be shocked. And it was, it was a very interesting, you know, contrarian type way to present information. Well, now with the internet, everybody knows everything. You have access to every bit of information. And so, you know, you, you go to these things and, and, and everybody's looking for something unique. you very, very much evidence-based. I want to know what the latest study is that shows one particular thing. So at the camp you and I met, that was kind of the format. It's let's get people together. Lane was doing his VIP camps and let's present some information. And, and I do, I, I do remember you as the van driver. You know, that was, uh, that was your, your, your just Lane's friend, I think you and I even trained legs together either that time or, yeah. or the next one. And uh, I, I do very, very distinctly recall, like, this is a good guy. Like, this is somebody, you, you are not Paul Ravello, the coach yet. Pro physique did no. not yet exist. But I thought, man, what a, what a great guy. And you and I have really become great friends ever since. Yeah, we've spent a few of your birthdays together. I always look forward to when we get to travel together. And, um, you know, uh, you know, I'll never get tired of saying it, but being friends with you is one of the great honors because, you know, I, I, I just admired you so much when I first got into this, um, that when we actually became friends, it was just, it's very exciting. So yeah, that's why I always love, uh, planning to get together. 
Well, likewise. And, and I think, again, it comes to that. Yeah, we're, we're two pretty, pretty authentic guys. You know, what you see is what you get. Um, when you were at that particular camp, you were, I think, just starting, maybe not even yet, working with clients. That may have come a little bit later. But, but tell me about that transition into you becoming a coach. Yeah, it wasn't something that, uh, you know, I was even interested in doing. Um, I had competed in 2008 at a show and I won that one. In 2009, I got a natural pro card. And that's when I was posting on the bodybuilding.com forums. And I was, I was literally posting every day, my workouts, pictures, you know, just my story. Um, and I think that kind of started to generate a little bit of interest. Also at that time, Lane was just generating a ton of interest. Like he was, you know, he would, he, he would tell me that he was so overwhelmed. He didn't even want to open his inbox some days. He was getting so many, you know, coaching requests and requests for his time. Um, and, and it just so happened that Lane ended up moving to Florida around that time. He, he graduated from university of Illinois and he had gone to Eckerd where I live, St. Pete, Tampa area and decided that Florida was the place for him. So, you know, when he moved here, you know, he had coached me, we had become friends um, so we ended up spending a lot of time together and I just recall, he would just always be on his computer. I'd go over to his house to hang out and he's like, oh, I got to answer emails. And I'd be like, all right, that's, you know, kind of lame. But, um, and then he would just always imply to me like, Hey, have you thought about coaching? You, you love this stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. I have a career in it. I go to the gym for me. I don't do it for other people. Um, and then, you know, after, over time, he wore me down in particular with the story of one, one kid who was like 18 years old, had given a trainer like 500 bucks to do a prep. The guy sent him a cookie cutter meal plan, which, you know, Lane was preaching about at that time. And when the kid questioned this trainer, who was an IFBB pro well-known guy, he said, well, you're fired and I'm keeping your money. And just, so the kid was upset. The kid's mom was upset. He didn't know what to do. Lane was like, man, do you think you would help this kid out? And I thought, you know, I'm just going to take the methods that I learned from you. And Lane said, Hey, if you have questions, you can ask me. And that to me was the best part because I'm like, man, I did not feel confident doing it, but I'm like, if Lane can help. So I just did the best I could. Lane helped me along the way. Um, and that kid ended up, I think he won his novice class might've won. Like, um, I, I forget. He just did well. And I remember his mom giving me a hug after the show. Um, I didn't charge him. I just prepped him. And I just remember his mom gave me a hug after the show and said, thank you so much. You know, my son was so heartbroken when he was, you know, kind of, you know, what happened to him and you've re kind of invigorated his love for bodybuilding. And, you know, you made me a believer that this can be a good industry. And I thought, oh, it kind of feels good. And, my, you know, my then girlfriend, now wife was Smithy, and she's like, you're good at this. You should do this. And that's probably the first time I thought, oh, maybe I will. You know, and that was, you know, I don't know, that was very early on 2010, 11, somewhere around there. So, um, but that was the first client, I guess. And what a, what a funny thing to consider. Um, first of all, the, the exact same thing happened to me today. Somebody had an issue with a, with a coach and they had to part ways. And, and I just literally did the same thing. It's, I don't want to say I'm rescuing this person. Uh, I don't want to, you know, take away any dignity there, but, uh, you know, you, you do, you, you feel for these people in our industry who are chewed up and spit out by just the, the disinformation, misinformation, the way that people just get churned through. And, and I have to say with my own origin story, because there was no template, there was no business model. I found myself swept up much the same way as Lane. So I end up with 200, 250, 300 clients at a time, 20 to 30 people competing every weekend. And I had to rearrange my entire business around that. It was never an intentional business model. And then at one point, I just thought, you know, this is not going to last. Bodybuilding is dying. This was right before men's physique was coming out, figure was coming out. And I just saw bodybuilding in general just, you know, on the decline. And I just stepped away. I just took some of our licensed owners as coaches, and I just started focusing on the general population aspects of our business. Uh, but then along comes you. Uh, Lane was obviously the catalyst for really taking this into social media in that era. And yep. then, you know, people like Ryan Doris, Eric Helms and, you know, Berto and all those people, but you, you quickly emerged kind of through your own path. And this is why I think you're one of the biggest influences today. At some point you decided, okay, if I'm going to do this as a career, 
I'm going to do some things maybe differently structurally. I'm going to market, advertise, create content a different way. So, so what were some of the earliest things you did very intentionally to build the career you have now? You know, well, the first thing I had was a, a ton of imposter syndrome, right? So, you know, I'm getting clients that I'm literally looking at them going, why do they want me to coach them? What, what, what is it about me? Like, I didn't even feel worthy. So, um, I really made it my goal to attend and be a part of many of these events as I could to get around people like you, like Dr. Campbell, Dr. Zoros, you know, Dom, anybody that I felt had some information that could help me be a better coach. Um, I found out that Dr. Campbell had a exercise science program at University of South Florida. I signed up for a few different online nutrition courses and certifications. And, you know, I just kind of went down the education rabbit hole. Um, but the biggest thing I wanted to do was, you know, I had an experience of online coaching with Lane and that experience for the time was probably good, but Lane was also very short with me in emails, didn't answer my questions. I also didn't always feel like he read and understood what I was asking. Um, so I thought if I'm going to be a coach, I, I can't, you know, Lane's up on a stratosphere that, you know, I cannot treat my people the same way that he does and get away with it. So I thought I have to take this and improve this process. And I also realized, you know, I like people. I love talking to people. So, you know, I implemented um, phone calls with all my pr prospective clients, which sounded scary to me. I thought, man, I'm going to spend all this time on the phone with someone and they might not even be my client. But that quickly became what made me love what I do because I got to know them as people. I got to know their goals. I became invested in their, their careers, their families, their kids. Um, and so I think what I became known as was somebody that was very attentive, uh, replied very quickly. I had a career in it at the time. So I was literally on my computer all day. So, you know, my thought was let's look at opportunities as technology emerges on how we can do things differently. And the biggest by far was when the technology for, um, video responses came out that I, I, I don't want to say I was the first. But I believe I was the first person at scale to send a video to every client every week. Um, and I want that to be the industry standard, you know, or beyond. But currently that's, I think I'm just always looking for if I can provide a little extra value. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, what is that statue behind you? I don't think I've ever noticed that before. So this one right here? No, the, the large, like full size one. The Rock? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's Dwayne The Rock Johnson? Yeah, it's like a life-size uh, pop-up of the rock. <laughs> Someone got me that for Christmas, probably my wife. That is awesome. For like the first month that it was in here, I would open the door and like get startled. <laughs> so the um, you, know, you start creating a little bit more of a customer service oriented model, which I think is, is great. You're, you're right. When I was, uh, you know, the technology wasn't there when I was doing this. And, and that's one of the things that kind of burned me out is, is I just felt like, I was not able to give the kind of service I wanted. And I didn't like to turn people away, but I thought I just can't do this at this level anymore. Um, you, you also created the whole video thing. What, t t tell me the year and maybe the influence of why you started creating the Oh, I, re video I remember. I remember it super clear. It's 2018 North Americans. You were there. I think I had 25 girls competing. And after the show, we were all sitting around and laughing and talking. And one of the girls says, you know, coach, the other day, I thought you were mad at me. And then all the other girls chimed in. Yeah. Are you mad at us? And, you know, they were joking because they were high on carbs. And, um, and I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, sometimes in your emails, you're short with us. And I thought, okay, well, give me an example. And they said, I said, you know, they said the situation. I said, okay, this week we're going to make this adjustment. And, you know, here's the, here's the changes. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a perfectly reasonable response to the fact that we're stalled. And yeah, but it sounds like you're mad. And I, in my brain, I don't think like a female or I don't know. I just looked at the words and thought, no, I, I gave you the information. You go ahead and run with it. Um, and so they jokingly said, well, sometimes, you know, text can seem, you know, their experience was like, oh, is he mad? Is he angry? And I thought there's got to be a way around this because I'm they don't know how happy I am. Like I, I'm proud of them. Um, and then I had a client send me a video one day. She sent me a video. And I remember looking at the video product and it was called bomb bomb, you know, dot com. And I thought, 
what is this? It's in my email. And I literally went to their website, signed up for it that day. And it, and it plugged right into my outlook. I love outlook. I don't use Gmail. Um, and Gmail now has like a loom product, but this bomb bomb was the first built in. So I can literally open up an email and click record faster than I can type now. Mm -hmm. Um, and that immediately changed everything. Again, I thought, oh man, how am I going to scale this? There's no way I can send videos to all my clients every week. Immediately, the feedback was, thank you, coach. I appreciate it. Um, and, and it just gave them a sense of where I was coming from because I would say, hey, great job this week, which you don't always type as much as you emote. Mm -hmm. You know, they can see my hand motions. They can see my face. Um, so yeah, it was definitely 2018. And um I mean, yeah, like I just wish it was available sooner and who knows what's available next. Maybe next time we'll, we'll be in the metaverse in the room, sitting down, talking yeah, to each other. Right. So. so when did you start creating your video content on YouTube? Because I think that was a game changer. You know, as I have seen different platforms come and go, it, it's always a matter of who gets there first and kind of fills that space uh, initially. And, and that creates yeah. a big market share capitalization. And you did that, I think, in YouTube better than anybody. So when did you start that? Well, I, when I started YouTube in 2010, 2009, it was a long time, you know, it was literally for me to play guitar and like, uh, I mean, I had some like softball videos. I just had random stuff. I thought of, it would be a personal diary when I'm like hundred years old, I'm gonna be able to look at these videos. Um, and then I started going on there looking up fitness content. And then my, you know, when I started coaching, I remember my clients would ask me questions that I could not find on YouTube. Hey coach, why do we do refeeds? And I'd go on YouTube and I'd be like, wait a minute, why am I going to send somebody a video of another coach talking about something? So I thought, well, I'll just send them a video on YouTube because that was the only tool available at that time. It never occurred to me that people were searching for things that I was posting about. Mm -hmm. um, I would post my workouts. I would post, I, you know, it, the first YouTube person, Scott Hermanson. I mean, I wish I would have thought, you know, he was the first guy that had like how to do a lap pull down. That video has like 5 million views. If you do a video now called how to do a lap pull down, it'll get four views, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the, the platform has progressed so much. So I, I do think I'm kind of clever in like looking at people's behaviors, looking at technology and going, what are they going to do next? I'm kind of clever in that way. So I thought, okay, I obviously have a very small YouTube channel. How can I grow? And I call it micro content. I can't do a video on how to do a lap pull down. There's already 10 videos with tens of millions of views on that, you know, IFBB giant guys. So I started doing content around things that we were discussing, things that were kind of forward thinking as far as the evidence-based world is concerned. Talking about, I love, I think I'm pretty sure I have the first ever video on diet break. I wanted to put it out for that reason. I thought, historically speaking, people are gonna be like, oh, diet breaks, because duh, they're the greatest thing for fat loss ever ever. And people were not even doing them years ago and people still aren't even doing them. So like, I thought I'm going to put this stuff out on YouTube that it's not going to get a lot of views today or tomorrow, but one of these days, someone's going to type in, what is a refeed? What is a diet break? And I want to be that. And, and so I've, I've, I've hit it on a couple topics and that's the way YouTube is. There's the, the videos are called evergreen. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you get in the top two or three for a search for a term, you're golden. And I have four or five videos like that. Um, so I still do my micro content. I have a few videos that have done well, but I just want to provide something that people need. Um, and I really enjoy that. And I just, I always just stick to being me. I, I don't try to sound smarter than I am. I try to explain it on their level. And if it's something I don't understand, I reach out to you. So I understand it better. And then I can explain what linear loading is. So, yeah. Well, that, that type of mindset that, that you, you want to be somebody who disseminates information to people. So it's usable you know, you're, you're underselling yourself a little bit, you know, you, you, you do have an IT background, you're, you've got an MBA, you're, you're, you know, you're in a, kind of an academic role, I would, I would think, but, uh, but yeah. maybe just a little bit tangent to, to bodybuilding. But at some point, I don't know if this was a conscious decision again for just business acumen, but did you say I'm going to specialize? Cause I mean, you are known as a bikini prep coach more than anything. Yeah. You, you, you have a lot of coaches now who do other things, but did you specifically at one point say, I'm going to specialize because this is just the right thing to do as a career. I fought it and fought it and fought it really did. Um, because I could have said, I want to be the best natural bodybuilding coach in the world. 
you know, I was on the cusp of that. I had, you know, Ray winning a world championship. I had a bikini competitor win a world. I, I could have just focused only on natural bodybuilding. Um, and, and the sport of bikini kind of just fell in my lap. Um, and even just saying the word bikini, it implies like something sexual or feminine, but it's just to me, bikini is the greatest female natural bodybuilding sport there is. Um, and so it's just taken a life of its own. And I'm the kind of person I just start to get obsessive about things. I have to know the whys. And when you start to become kind of an expert in one area, it makes sense to focus on that. You just become better at it. And so as ridiculous as this sentence sounds, I wanted to become the world's best expert in the bikini division. I started attending seminars based around bikini. I started reaching out to the judges to get their feedback. Um, you know, I don't have an ego when it comes to this stuff. If I see somebody having better results than me, I want to know why. I want to know what those coaches are doing. And I incorporate that stuff into my, my approach. Whereas I think a lot of coaches go, no, my, my way is the best way. That's how we do it. That's why I win. Realizing that the reason people are good coaches is mostly the athletes. They get the, 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 the benefit of coaching. It just so happens if you get really good at coaching, the good athletes start to look at what your stuff, they start to listen to you and they start to reach out to you. Now I have the clientele to match my history the bikini division to me is just, it's just happened because I'm very good at paying attention to, to that specific thing, how to build muscle, how to get stage lean and how to take care of an athlete. Because I think women more than men, um, get damaged from improper preps. Um, men have this ability to go preps over. I don't care if I gain 20 or 30 pounds, women will do damage to themselves by trying to stay stage lean, binging purging, you know, these terrible traits. Whereas I think I've found a method where we can prep healthy. I know I have, um, and still be happy in the improvement season. So, yeah, I just, I feel like I found a bit of a calling. It just sounds weird to say that, but it's, you know, it, it just feels right. Well, I do think, and, and I teach this all the time to the coaches I'm mentoring in business, creating their own careers and brands. Uh, it is counterintuitive to specialize, to say, I'm going to say no to all of this and only yes to this. But not only do you become intuitively better, the more experience you have working with that one population in that, in that one division, it really does create what you just said, this, this tidal wave of, of business that then can create other orbits because now you have a lot of coaches, you, you work, I mean, general population, people see your content and they're like, well, if he can do that with, you know, an Olympia athlete, you know, certainly can do that with me. And so in a very, again, counterintuitive way, you just grow larger by intentionally focusing on something smaller. Yeah. And I do make an effort to still talk about other topics. You know, I, I, I realize that, um, bikini's not, you know, broad, but it is, but it is, you know, a proper way to lose fat, maintain it, um, and, and reach your physique goals. And, you know, you and I know this, like most clients reach out to a coach and say, I want to look like a competitor, but I don't want to compete. Mm -hmm. Um, but you and I both know that nobody's ever going to look as good as a competitor unless they compete. I mean, one in a million will, will actually go through that process. Um, so th there is that back and forth, but I found the same thing to be true. You know, the other day, I, so I had a gentleman last year win a natural Olympia masters title and I had to tell him I can't coach him this year. And that it's gut wrenching to me because I loved coaching him and I want him to win another world title. And, you know, that feels great. But at the same time, that's just going to take my focus off of what I'm, what I'm building with my focus right now on, on this bikini division. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it gets harder and harder to be niched, but I mean, it's just easier in the long run because now my training programs, my thought processes. So I've also invented a product that's coming out this year. Wouldn't have been possible if I was focused on all these things. I just noticed something that was missing and it's about to come out and I'll tell you about it off air, but you know, when you really, you know, I, I love Gary Vee when he talks about this, when you focus on, he calls it the dirt in the clouds, when you're in the dirt and for a coach and you've seen it a hundred times, you build a little bit of a following as a coach. You, now you're an influencer and you stop doing the things that coaches do. I'm backstage at every freaking show. I'm obsessed with coaching still. I haven't lost that at all. In fact, if anything, it's just, there's more fuel on the fire than ever you notice and see things when you're in the dirt that other people don't see that are just casual coaches, right? Um, 
And so I'm, I'm, I'm still just very obsessive about the coaching at this point. And that's what I want to ask you as another level of specialization, because I, I would say three or four times distinctly, I've come back to this in my life to, to realize, you know, what is it that I love to do? What am I, not only what am I best at, but what do I love? And from the time I was in my twenties until now, I keep coming back to just the word clinician. Sometimes I get a little jealous of my friends who are doing research. I think, well, maybe I should do that. Maybe I'll just, you know, kind of, kind of leave this behind. And I'm going to go teach at a university and I want to, I want to do that. That sounds so fun. And then I think, and maybe I should do this. Maybe I should get back into the physical therapy world and, and do that. And, you know, or strength, you know, performance stuff. I love the whole conversation we have right now, uh, you know, all about duration, frequency, intensity, all of those things. And I'm like, gosh, you know, I do my best work when I'm one-on-one -on -one with a client. And that's why after 20 years of even stepping away from having my own facility, I've, I've recreated a new headquarters in Evansville, Indiana, because I want to be where I have staff and trainers and people come into a building and, and I see that life and that energy. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious when you say that you are a coach and you want to stay there, especially using that Gary Vaynerchuk language of, of staying in the dirt um, you know, what does that mean for you for the next five, 10 or 15 years? What, you know, how do you grow a business around you where you still sit there behind, uh, curtains at, at contests? Well, the, the biggest thing is to realize is that, you know, being a competition prep coach is a lot of my weekends are going to be at shows, you know, you know, my wife and I discuss, I'm going to be at potentially 30 to 40 shows this year. Um, so there's a lot of travel involved in that. The other side of that coin is, is when I'm home, I'm home. I work from home. I'm at my house. So it's a unique situation where um, when I'm home, I can do content that's built around the general population questions. Um, I myself am going to be competing and getting on stage again. That gives me a lot of creative juices. That gets me, you know, that gets me in the moment thinking about, okay, what did I do differently with my diet this year, with my cardio? The things that I've learned are the things that I love to share. So while I have kind of a specific coaching goal and I love being at the shows, I still also have these personal things that I love to do and talk about. Um, and I, it, it, right now it just blends very well for me. I don't feel like there's a conflict at all. There's two sides to me, you know, prep coach. And then the, the bro in me that still wants to put on muscle at 46 years old and, you know, put on tanning oil and, you know, maybe you'll be there this year again. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You got to let me know, man. I'm, I'll be back there with yeah. you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's really what, what drives me right now is, um, is the idea of opportunity. Um, and then also I have an amazing team around me, you know, hiring Steven Bogrand, having my wife come on board with pro physique. I let go of all those job roles. I don't do invoicing. I don't do inquiries. I don't do technology. I don't do our website. I literally just work on my emails, make some YouTube videos, respond to Instagram stuff, go to shows. And now that I have that freedom, um, I was in the way of growth, whereas now we literally have, you know, 30 employees dedicated to certain roles. Some are coaches, some are website developers, you know. So once you get that stuff behind you, now it's just for me to continue what, doing what I'm doing and just let nature take its course. Um, so that that's really the, the what's allowed me to be a better coach was not doing all the other things that, you know, as a as an online coach, when you get good, you almost become more focused on business than coaching. Like there's a, there's a breaking point where you're like, man, what do I do here? Um, you know, and we've seen a lot of well-known coaches, Lane included, just go, I'm not coaching anymore. I'm doing business stuff, but I, I just love coaching. Like I could do that, but I, I just love coaching. And, and that's so important. And, and that's why I came back to my example of being in that clinical mindset, because even now, as I mentor coaches and, you know, creating the National Academy of Metabolic Science and the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind and Apex Coach, all these different things, it's still an extension where when you look at my role and all of those things, I'm teaching people how to be better clinicians. I'm, I'm yeah. all about building that clinical experience, that relationship between a client and a coach, and even just the standards of practice that our career, our occupation just completely lacks. Like we, we, we're, we're inventing this as we go. And, yeah. and that's a big part of what I think my role is now, um, you know, having been somebody who saw the very birth of it accidentally yeah. and now. I also see besides those normal business cycles that you're describing that we all kind of go through that the, the growth pains of an industry and 
Not only does an industry have a typical cycle that it goes through, and, and I think we're in a very catabolic one now where so many people jumped into the swimming pool that there are a lot of people starving and, and dying through attrition, but then you have all the technological changes, you have the cultural changes. So you being in it now for more than 10 years, I think beyond just your development and perspective, you have to have seen some major shifts and cycles in how business is done in general. And what are you seeing now for where our coaching industry is? Where, where does a coach thrive in, in trying to become somebody with their own unique brand? I mean, I'd probably have to think about all the top coaches. Um, there's a lot of branding that goes on. And, and when I think about you know the careers, I think a lot of people now are looking at it education first. You know, I, I know a lot of people that are registered dietitians that are going to school to study exercise science. I know we have four or five coaches on our staff that have master's degree in exercise science. You know, Bill Campbell does a lot of physique enhancement uh, work at his grad program. Um, so there's a lot of that. But I also sadly see a, you know, the thing that you and I will often joke about is the, um, how to build your Fitbiz to $100,000 in six months with our program. And it's, it's essentially just a, how to be a good salesman, how to, you know, how to market yourself versus the more organic approach, um, which, you know, I have mixed emotions on because I did it one way, but at the same time, if I was 22 in college and I wanted to be a coach right now, I'd probably get sucked into that. And you and I have seen people get sucked into that, but a lot of people want to be coaches because of the financial aspect. They think, wow, you can work from home and make a lot of money. But I don't think many people realize how demanding coaching is. And if it's not something you love, you will burn out so fast. You know, it's very demanding. You've got to be invested in people. Uh, I consider myself um, someone who is highly emotionally intelligent. I understand people's emotions and feelings just about better than anybody I've ever met. And, and that's a weird thing to say, but it's taken me like 40 something years to realize what that even is. Um, you know, I'm very, let's say I'm in a restaurant with my kids. I'm more aware of the people around us than my own family. I'm like, how are my kids impacting these people's days? And it's the same thing with me. When I think of a client, I'm, I'm wondering how my behavior is impacting them. If I make a post about another client, if I don't answer their email in a certain amount of time, like I'm very aware of that stuff. So I think I just have always kind of held myself to a very high standard. I don't see all the other coaches doing that. Um, it, it's, it's tough for me because there are a lot of coaches doing great things out there, but you know, from when, when you started, I think you would have thought it would have gotten further by now. The barrier to entry to coaching right now, is pretty low. You can be a snake oil salesman and sleazy and have one well-known client and just thrive, right? Um, yeah, so for sure. It, yeah, it's 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 a little bit tricky. But, you know, when people ask me like, well, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, when you started, there was like 10 coaches and now there's like tens of thousands. And I said, well, the cream rises. You know, you're getting people that are interested in coaching, getting a bad coach. The first thing they do is ask their friend on or on, go on the internet and say, hey, who are the good coaches? Guess who shows up? the good coaches, right? So um, there's a common theme and there's a reason why, you know, you know, Steven does such a good job with pro physique with keeping our standards so high. We make all of our coaches go through your training platform. We make all of our coaches go through our personal philosophies where they have to understand this is the way we do things. Um, and we don't just bring on coaches because we need them. We bring on coaches because they fit our philosophies. Well, what you're describing is exactly what I tell coaches who come to me to help with their careers. And uh, I, I will tell people all the time, you know, you can definitely churn through some big numbers if you're just willing to put up pictures of yourself naked. And if you have abs and biceps and all of that stuff, you, you definitely do not need that master's degree. But if you really want a career that lasts and you want a career that matters that you can be proud of, then there is, as you said, this organic element where you have to be willing to say, I'm going to build this one good client experience at a time. And, you know, I, I go back to even my own beginnings 30 years ago, and I never set out to do any of this stuff. I was just a physical therapist who bought a gym, started adding nutrition programming to it, got my pro card, started writing for magazines. And then as somebody who had the education plus the pro status and some of my own ideals and ideas that were a little bit contrarian to those peaking methods we were talking about earlier, 
And, and there was never any direction to it. There was never any master plan. It was just authentically taking care of people one at a time. And, and I do know what you're saying, Paul. And, and that is, I think we agree, the future, but for fewer people, because you do have those people swooping in like the snake oil salesmen, the hawks who, who take a big part of the market share. But if you have the resilience and you have the patience to do that just by being, as I said, the first time I saw you driving the van, you know, that's when we met. I'm like, that's a good guy. Like, I, th I think that is your specialty. When you say that you have a high emotional intelligence, that is your brand. So when I say brand, I don't mean sleazy, like let's hide behind something that's a facade. I mean, sure. something you truly breathe and live and that is authentic to you. And, you know, I, I would say from both looking inside of your life and from the outside as just a consultant, um, you know, that's why you're successful. You are that guy. Yeah, I think you don't realize what you're um, what you're good at until, you know, other people tell you, uh, you know, when I started making YouTube videos, I didn't understand why they were doing well. But I think I'm good at sensing what people are interested in and relaying that information. And that's a skill. You don't think of being able to speak, you know, on camera as a skill. But I've had some people that are amazing coaches and amazing physiques and say, hey, let's do a video. And then you put them on camera and you're like, man, this will not get watched. So you know, there's definitely some unique skills that come with being a coach. Now, you don't have to have a good personality to be a coach. You know, everyone has their kind of specialties. Um, I'm, I don't like writing. You know, I have tried so many times to do projects together where you're like, hey, just write me a paragraph. Man, I, I just, I cannot write. Um, I don't know what that specific skill is you know, on my brain. You, meanwhile, you've probably written 30 novels. You have to be an introvert. That, that's why you're so great, you know, being out there is just total difference. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but, but Lane likes to write too. So I, you know, you know, I don't know if it's, if it's as hard for him as it was for me, but one of the first things that Lane was able to do for me is he, you know, he had bodybuilding.com and muscular development, reach out to me to write articles and get paid. He's like, this is how you can build your career. So I did it but I hated every second of it. So the second I didn't have to do that, I stopped. Well, now you don't have to because the video medium has kind of taken over. Yeah, and in podcasting and, you know, the, the spoken word is the most powerful thing now because people have access to it at all times, riding in their car, driving to work, in the gym, working out. So many people will be like, yeah, I listen to your podcast while I work out. Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's awesome, you know, so. Absolutely. So let's flash forward. You and I are in our 60s sitting on the beach. And we're looking back saying, okay, this is, this is the occupation that, that we forged. And now we've seen it grow this far. What do you think it's going to be like in, let's say 20 years? And, and how are you making that happen? Yeah. So I, you know, I've always been pretty good at looking at what, what's, what's coming, what's going to change. How am I going to make sure that my career is safe? Right. So in, in grad school, getting your master's in business, um, they call it a SWOT analysis. You got to look at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities and your threats. So I'm always like, what are the threats to my job? Well, usually it's when a client reaches out to me and says, hey, coach, I no longer want to be your client. OK, why? I found someone in my hometown that has a really good team and I want someone local. That's really the biggest threat to an online coach. Now, when you and I started, there were no good coaches in person or online. I mean, there were few and far between. Like when I told you, like Lane was getting like 50 client requests a day. I'm sure you went through periods where you were just literally open up your inbox and it's like, oh my gosh. So it's still kind of that way. But I think what's going to happen over time is, you know, you coached Lane, Lane coached me. I've coached these coaches. Now I have 23 coaches under me. They're going to have influence on people. And I think what's going to happen eventually is, you know, I want, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to be a local coach with a small footprint, a studio style gym, which is why I opened mine, because now you can have impact on people on a broad spectrum, but also build the culture around something local. And I think you're going to start seeing these things pop up in different cities, you know, larger cities first. Obviously I own Tampa, <laughs> but you know, there's even other good coaches in Tampa that I'm aware of. Right. And so you're starting to see this, um, in different locations, like, oh, this team is in this location and there's a good culture around that. So I think that's the future of coaching is it's going to go from being an online to an in-person where 
people are going to start to gravitate to, you know, I think one thing that's really allowed me to grow as a coach is people love our culture. Girls love to be a part of our team because they support each other. We go to the events together. We travel together. Um, our coaches are there. So I think that's probably the, what I see happening in the next 10 to 15 years, having a physical presence as well as being able to put content online for people to find you. And, you know, I'm still going to have a good online presence, but if you don't have someone that's local to you that you have faith in, you're going to work with me. I'm actually starting to now build a local talent pool, which I never had before. I could not agree more. And it's good. I, I think a lot of my apex coaches watch this are going to be laughing because they're like, yeah, Joe's been telling me that for years, <laughs> but here's the irony. I read about that as a business principle 30 years ago in Club Industry Magazine. And, and this predates, and I'm going to show you how these kind of trends impact different industries. This predates CrossFit. And what they were saying back then, because this was the era of the lifetime fitness brands of people who were opening 110,000 square foot facilities and trying to have everything for everyone. And they said the future is in the small boutique shop where that trainer, that nutrition coach, they didn't call them nutrition coaches back then, you know, could be the one-stop shop for everybody. It was the third space. It was the place to get all of your needs met. And so that happened, you know, in the last 15 to 18 years, there have been, I think, up to $15 billion flowing through functional fitness facilities, CrossFit boxes, to the tune of only a 2% failure rate where the reverse almost happens with gyms, a 98% failure rate. And, uh, and now that has cycled all the way to personal nutrition coaching for the exact same reason. Whether you're a general population client or you're a fitness competitor, you know everybody does prefer to have that place where they can connect. So I, I think you're completely, completely right on the money. Uh, I remember yeah. you and I talked about this a few years ago too, where... Um, you know, I don't think you had this space yet, but I was saying, you know, hey, you should you should probably become a diet doc license owner and I can help you create that presence in Tampa. Yeah, I mean, that was something that my wife and I went back and forth on so many times trying to figure out, you know, if that license was the best thing for us. Ultimately, we didn't decide to go that route, but the idea was so sound that I understood where your licensees were coming from. I just felt my momentum was enough that it wasn't going to necessarily benefit me. But now that we are getting, so the next step for our business is we're getting um, a private space in a commercial gym that's got 40,000 square feet. So I'm going from having 2,000 square feet to now I'm going to be able to offer contest prep services inside of a 40,000 square foot facility with a physical therapist, with CrossFit, with bodybuilding, with MMA. Um, so we'll see how that experiment goes. You know, I'm open to whatever's, whatever's approach is best. But I, I also want to start doing more of these seminars and events um, to bring people in, because that's really how you grow your local culture is around just getting people in. Um, so that's going to be the next this next year for us is going to be developing that that in-person touch. So with with that being the near future, where do you think your career ends? If, if we look at that last chapter, you're about ready to hand the keys off to somebody. Here's pro physique. What, what do you want this next 15 to 20 year run to look like? Yeah, I think, you know, when I think of the future of, of pro physique, you know, Steven's a big part of it. You know, he's been someone that's helped me get it off the ground. Um, if I do start to want to travel a little bit less, you know, my kids are now seven and three um, and we even have a one-year-old. So like, as that time, the weekends become more important to me, you know, I may want to be a, a, a fewer shows, take on fewer clients. So I'll probably put more emphasis on growing our coaching staff being more hands-on with them um, and see if, you know, somebody like Steven or, you know, we have some other superstar coaches um, that are just growing exponentially, you know, and, and maybe could take over my spot and kind of be the face of the business. But I don't know that I'll ever completely just retire and walk away. Um, I liked how you've evolved. You know, there's been many times where I thought, okay, Joe's already been through this and what's he doing now? And I look at what you're doing and what you're thinking about. Um, and continuing to give back, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll continue to evolve and grow um, on the whatever, whatever media platforms are allowing us to put out content. I, I've tried TikTok. I don't really, you know, find it productive. But in my mind, YouTube has not slowed down. You know, of all the platforms, you know, MySpace and Facebook and, and they kind of come and go. YouTube has just been on this rise. And so I think I, I kind of got lucky in that it's such a like a meritocracy YouTube. 
doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter how old you are. It just matters if people like your information and want to hear it from you, you'll build a following. Um, and so I think I'll just continue to evolve on there and see where it takes me. I mean, I still have some career goals I want to reach as far as like coaching. I'd like to win an Olympia, you know, some of these kind of things. Um, and I'm gonna keep fighting for those. So yeah, my, my, my retirement, you know, I think like you, uh, I'd like to be involved, even if it's a more personal hands-on, even if I'm working with fewer competitors, but they're coming into the gym, I'm helping them train. I'm working on their posing in person, maybe just going to a few key shows a year. Um, something like that. That sounds fun to me. The, you know, the real thing that's been fun for me about being a coach the last three, four years, I've traveled to cities that I never would have probably traveled to in my life. And I've really enjoyed getting to see cities like Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, you know, we've all, you know, we're familiar with Las, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New York City, but I traveled to cities, you know, South Carolina. I'd, I'd never been to Charleston before. I've been there like five times the last two years. What a wonderful place. So I, I'd like to think, Hey, me and my wife can pick up the kids and we can go spend a week in a fun city while I do my job, you know? So there are some awesome benefits to it. You know, as a, as a poor kid whose family used to have to dig through the couch cushions just to get gas money to see if we could <laughs> go to town. Uh, I'm the same way. At one point I started making a list of all the cities that I've been to through my career. It, it's just, it's humbling. And, and that, that truly is one of the best things is, is meeting those people, seeing those places. I still just, I, I love just walking around a city I've never been in and I'm just so starry eyed. Uh, it's, it's amazing. But you know, when my oldest child and I have four was 12, that's when I looked at the things you just described. And I thought, you know, I, I was preparing for what I thought might be my last contest season and part of it was because with kids in little league and doing these things, I just thought, you know, this, this is more important to me. And you and I have talked about this in the past, but you've, you had a phenomenal relationship with your father, which is not always a, a common thing as yeah. did I. And that cemented in me, those values that I could say no to opportunity. I, I had different rules. I would set on myself or, you know, how, and when I would travel and what I would do in my career. And at that point, when I just looked at this one particular summer where I thought I'm getting too much obsessed with my prep and I'm fatigued and I'm going through all that stuff that I was saying no to my children, that's, that's the last time I ever competed. And it was easy for me to make that decision because my, my family meant more to me. My role as a father meant more to me. So knowing that you had that great relationship with your father and now you have three children, I'd love to hear just one final question about how you see your career impacting them in a positive way and, and how you may be cognitively keeping them away from any, any negative impacts you may see. Yeah. I think the, the obvious one is the financial benefit. You know, I, like you said, you've been able to travel and do things that you never thought possible. Now I, you know, my father was a firefighter. My mom was a secretary growing up. So, you know, we weren't well off, but it's not like I wanted for anything. I had a bike, I had toys, you know, um, and I never flew on an airplane or did any of that stuff when I was young, but I just don't think that was common in the eighties. Um, so, you know, I never thought of myself as not having things growing up, but the lifestyle that I've been able to provide for my family, you know, my kids have traveled and done things that, you know, my wife for my seven year old's birthday, she, they flew to North Carolina to go see a concert that he was uh, imagine dragons. He wanted to go see them. So I'm like, man, I can't even remember my first concert I was in my 20s right the first time I flew I was in my 20s probably you know like so you know we're going to be able to provide things uh, financially for the kids which also presents some problems because I don't want them to grow up little assholes who think that you know they own the world um, but the other side of that is what I really see from my kids that they're going to see what I'm doing they see that I'm up before them that I'm up that I put them to bed and I, I go back to work they see me working out whether it's in the garage they see the level of effort that I put into everything that I do. They see that I go back to school to study. Um, so I just want, you know, that's what I remember the most about my dad. My dad was always working. He was a firefighter and had two other full-time jobs. He worked at a lumberyard um, and he worked, you know, odds and ends jobs all the time. He was constantly working, saving, putting money away. I never heard my dad say a bad word about anybody else. I never heard my dad made an excuse I never, my dad never let me, you know, buy something that we couldn't afford, you know, like the values that were so annoying when I was young, literally became who I am. And I'm so grateful because you don't realize when you're young, 
how terrible some other kids have it or, you know, and, and I mean, yeah. So that's why I'm so grateful for my dad because the, the values that he instilled in me were just, I, I don't know if they were ahead of his time, but you know, like I, you know, it's rare to hear somebody that has never complained. I've never heard my dad complain. If, if something's not working, he'll say, good, let's figure out how to make it work. Like that's, that's his attitude. Not, oh, it's the government's fault that I can't do this. And it, it, he's never complained. It's, it's the, the answer is always simply, let's just work and make it happen. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I want my kids to see uh, how, how I'm going to do that. I'm just, I'm just going to allow my, you know, my natural instincts to take over. No one, no one gives you parenting lessons. You know, I definitely hear my, my voice coming out of, you know, my dad's voice coming out of my head a lot now, now that my seven-year-old is getting yelled at sometimes. Um, but you know, the most important thing is that I'm there for them. They understand that they have to be good people. Um, especially when we're not around, we expect them to hold a, a, a standard, um, and, you know, the, the evolution of education and our society and these gender role things. I mean, these are all challenges that we're facing together. But, you know, I think my wife and I are on the same page in that stuff. And that's really helpful. And so far, I got to say, they're great kids. So I'm very happy. You know, the fact that you can articulate that many values and such strong ties to them is, again, why I have to come back to my attraction to you as a person at that camp was this is a good guy. That's what you bring to this sport. That's why I love the fact that we have such a strong friendship and that you're one of the biggest uh, founding influences in the sport. So Paul Ravella, thank you so much for your time and, and letting me make you part of the canon of history for nutrition coaching. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul.